I'm queuing up a CD that came across my desk a few months ago. It's a pretty amazing thing. A Vietnam veteran brought it into the Bullock, Texas State History Museum in Austin, Texas, where I work. The disc's surface is white, and scrolled on it is a date, and a few other words. Medevac, wounded, Phuc Vinh, RVN, and a name, Jim Kearney. Jim's a native Texan. He recorded the audio on that CD in 1971. Luckily for us, he had it digitized a few years ago. He originally made that recording using one of these. Oh, I'm not a child of the 70s. Cassette tapes were introduced in the mid-1960s. By the end of the decade, they become the first really popular way of taking your music with you. With 10 days left in his tour of duty in Vietnam, Jim Kearney had a rare day off from his duties as a combat medic. His army inventory list of personal items includes a microphone, headphones, and a cassette recorder. Jim was relaxing, listening to music on tape. Then there was a call for volunteers for an urgent rescue mission. A medic was needed. Jim volunteered to go. He didn't even have time to change out of his blue jeans before he was on board a medevac helicopter. I was not in uniform, and I had my little cassette tape recorder with me, so I just stuck my microphone and my cassette recorder into a helmet and put some gauze around it and plugged it into the intercom and turned it on. It recorded the whole flight. From the Bullock Museum in Austin, Texas, this is Vietnam on Tape, a Texas story podcast. I'm Evan Windham. Now, before we continue with Jim's story, I need to let you know that this podcast contains descriptions of war and audio of military combat. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. The helicopter mission we're hearing the sound of right now, it became a critical moment of Jim's service in Vietnam, a critical moment in his whole life. It also takes us back to a time half a century ago that remains critical to how we think of ourselves as Americans. It was a time when the war in Vietnam divided American public opinion and divided American families. In 1965, after decades of simmering conflict, President Lyndon B. Johnson made the decision to send U.S. combat forces into South Vietnam. Today, peace and security are no longer empty communist promises, but guarantees from the latest entries in the war, the United States Marine Corps. Many young men voluntarily enlisted, driven by a sense of duty and concern for national security. But behind closed doors, even the president, a native Texan, had reservations. Two days before combat forces arrived in Vietnam, President Johnson's doubts were recorded in a telephone conversation with Senator Richard Russell. Dick, the trouble is, with this finally, the great trouble I'm under, a man can fight if he's got, if he can see daylight down the road somewhere. But there ain't no daylight in Vietnam. There's not a bit. There's no end of the road. There's just nothing, nothing. The more bombs you drop, the more nations you scare, the more people you make mad, the more embassies you get painted. We're going to wind up with the people mad as hell with us that we're saving by being in there. It's the biggest, it's the worst mess I ever saw in my life. You couldn't have inherited a worse 
Yes, well, they'd say I inherited, be lucky, but they'll all say I created it. As the conflict escalated, news broadcasts brought images of Vietnam home to living rooms in Texas and across the whole United States. By June of 1968, polls indicated that the majority of the country believed the United States was either losing or standing still in Vietnam. Walter Cronkite's 1968 CBS special report concluded with the respected journalist voicing his own doubts. After that broadcast, President Johnson reportedly said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Vietnam was the last war for which the U.S. military relied on conscription, the mandatory enrollment for men aged 18 to 26 years old for military service. So conscription, also known as the draft, loomed large for any young American man growing up in the late 1960s and early 70s. One day, you check your mailbox and find a letter from the Selective Service System. It could change your life. Emergency medevac, ASAP. Some men enlisted as a way to have a choice in their military future. The majority of those that served in Vietnam during the war were volunteers. About 25% were draftees. The draft posed a moral dilemma for many whose religious or ethical convictions prohibited them from carrying a weapon into war. They were called conscientious objectors. Their status was sanctioned in conscription law, codified by Congress and affirmed by the courts, and then implemented by the Selective Service System. That's military historian Jean Mansavage. She's worked for the Department of Defense since 1995. The dissertation she researched in the 1990s looked at the role served by conscientious objectors in Vietnam. So much of the information that's out there in secondary histories looks at draft resistance or draft violators or draft protesters, and they seem to lump these legal conscientious objectors in that group, and they were legally allowed to not serve with weapons. If you got drafted and your moral concerns were deemed legitimate, but not a barrier to wearing a uniform, the U.S. military classified you as a 1AO conscientious objector. 1AOs were individuals who, for reasons of religious training and belief or deeply held ethical rationale, refused to train with weapons, they refused to kill, though they wanted to serve in the military and fulfill their obligations to society in in a broad sense by serving in the military when called. You were then assigned to serve in a non-combat position. This was not a ticket out of harm's way. Conscientious objectors actually served by the thousands on the front lines of Vietnam as combat medics, flying into harm's way without a weapon. We had a very peculiar situation. That's Jim Kearney, the veteran who brought us the audio from his cassette recorder. He was a 1AO conscientious objector. What's unique about 1AOs is they are in the thick of things. They are not on the periphery. They're on the A-team. They're not sitting on the bench. And you knew if you were granted this classification, that 1AOs became, paradoxically, combat mess in combat without weapons. And so you were likely to sign your own ticket into the thick of the battle. That is exactly what happened to Jim Kearney. The 50-year-old audio Jim brought in, it recorded the moment when Jim's helicopter was strafed by machine gun fire. Decades after the event, Jim Kearney is now actively wrestling with what it really meant to serve as a 1AO conscientious objector in Vietnam. It's a journey that's led Jim to attempt to reconnect a half century later with some of those he served with. And after a career as a respected historian and author, he has different questions than he did in 1969. Now he wants to find the data. He wants to know how many there were like him, where they went, what happened to them. Records are scarce. 
It's a history that few people still remember. We'll be telling this piece of the story of Texas on this podcast series from the Bullock Museum in Austin, Texas. In a later episode, we'll hear the full story of Jim's final mission as a combat medic, recorded on that amazing cassette tape. I've got uh, two wounded very slightly and uh, one man that's been kilo into your alpha. I would like for you to take this uh, out there to Papa Victor. I'll make arrangements with my six eight element to come over and pick him up uh, when you get him in there. I'll admit that when I first listened to Jim's Vietnam audio, I didn't have much context. I thought the audio from the mission tape was the full story. But since then, I've talked a lot with Jim Kearney, and I learned very quickly that those 19 minutes are just scratching the surface. So I kept talking with Jim. A lot. I was just trying to really wrap my head around the meaning of his story as a Vietnam conscientious objector. To do that, though, you need to go back to before Vietnam back to the ranch where Jim grew up in Columbus, Texas. (laughs) Columbus, Texas, population 3,640 in 2019, is the county seat of Colorado County. It's just off the Colorado River. It's classic Texas. The courthouse sits on the town square, and the nearly 150-year-old buildings are shrouded by massive live oaks. Gorgeous. I recently drove through that town square to visit Jim on his ranch. Jim had prepared for my visit by pulling out a number of artifacts related to his experience in Vietnam. Letters, pictures, his medical bag, his shirt with a bullet hole. But before we looked at those, we went for a walk outside. Hey! Oh, wow! (laughs) In the horse barn, Jim pointed out his father's hat and his saddle, now about 100 years old. There was an old Western saddle from the 1870s, and the chaps Jim wore here as a kid, working cattle on horseback. We had thousands of acres to roam over my brother and I as kids. You know, we could fish, hunt. We had tractors, jeeps, (laughs) horses. It was a boy's paradise. Back then, in those days, we had to work, too. But when we did, we had to make our fun. And we did it in nature. We would wander all day long over thousands of acres or saddle up our ponies and just ride and explore. And we learned experientially. I mean, no, no, we didn't learn through books, but we learned what plants you can eat and what's poisonous and how to avoid snakes. And we would just stop and take delight in climbing a, a nice tree, you know. Mm-hmm. Tree climbing was a big deal for us, especially these patriarchal live oaks that we are so blessed with here in Colorado County. You know, we claim to have the biggest one in the world there. Yeah. And we would love, and we would climb way up in these trees and just feel like we were birds. There was one live oak in particular that Jim and his brother loved to climb. It was in the yard of the ranch house. It was a wonderful climbing tree. Mm. And uh, we grew up climbing in that tree with these enormous branches that ran parallel to the ground. And it covered our whole backyard. Still does. You know, like a big, huge umbrella. For Jim, that live oak tree brings back some of the best memories of his childhood. That tree also serves as a reminder of one critical day during his tour of duty in Vietnam. So when I visited Jim on the ranch, I knew I wanted to get a closer look at the pattern of bark on those grand live oaks. But I'm getting ahead of the story. 
The ranch Jim grew up on is part of the original Cunningham League. It's a large plot of land that's been handed down by inheritance, never sold, since 1833. Yeah, there's lots of memories of uh, growing up here. And, uh, you know, we learned, uh, we worked always, we worked the cattle in a traditional way with horses. And, uh, it's always been our goal, it was my parents' goal, to try to live in harmony with nature and to have an operation that coexisted with more or less the natural landscape. This is gorgeous, the way it opens up like this. this yeah, this is a natural flat. This area has never been logged, so it is about as close as you can get to, uh, as you look out here, as it was before a white man came. And we grew up with a sense of history, you know, because, uh, well, we'll pass it right up here, I'll show you, the old Gonzales Road. And this is a road that went all the way back to Spanish and colonial times. Wow. Now, if you look just to your right there, you kind of see that little indentation running yeah. to the right. Mm -hmm. That's the old road. Wow. That's yeah. from mainly from the thousands of ox carts and wagons during the Civil War. There was continuous travel here, hundreds, thousands of them uh, carrying cotton to Mexico. Jim's father served as the link between the Cunninghams and the Kearneys as keepers of the land. My father, he uh, grew up in Columbus and graduated from Columbus High School, and he went and played professional baseball for eight years, right out of high school. The Cunningham family line was nearing its end. The last of the Cunninghams were three older women. Uh, this family just didn't have many children, and then these three women got to know my father, and they took a liking to him. Jim's father went to play baseball in San Antonio. He was a pitcher in the Texas League, but an injury to his arm ended his career. He got a job with public service in San Antonio. Then there was an accident. His father was electrocuted, burning the tendons in his right hand. He fell 25 feet. So what is he going to do? He's unmarried, and he had grown up working cattle and knew agriculture, and he decided the only thing I can do is buy my own ranch and be self-employed the rest of my life. The three Cunningham women remembered their former neighbor. They said, Charlie, we want you to come back to Columbus. And if you come back to Columbus and take care of us in our old age, we will give you this land. Wow. And uh, so that was, <laughs> was an easy decision. Yeah. That decision made the Kearneys the legal and spiritual inheritors of the land. By 1968, Jim was in college in the University of Texas at Austin, 90 miles away. And things didn't feel so peaceful. The war in Vietnam divided many American families, including Jim's. I kind of had a doubting Thomas nature. I just didn't always believe what I was told. I began to read extensively about Vietnam. I read Erwin Reischauer, some of these people who were beginning to raise doubts about the whole rationale for the thing, and I became a news junkie, you know, listening to Walter Cronkite every evening. Television news brought the war home in a way that had happened with no previous war. Some of the images were graphic. Scenes of wounded casualties or civilians fleeing the effects of napalm, which caused human flesh to burst into flame. Reporters interviewed soldiers on the battlefield, personalizing their experiences of war. Uh, how much time have you got to do? I have approximately 268 days to go over here. So you've been here a very short time. I've been here three and a half months. I heard you had some pretty interesting experiences already. Uh, yes, I have. Like what? I've been shot down already twice. Students on the UT campus gathered together to watch the newsreels in silence. 
and the young Jim Kearney began to question the morality of the war. You know, I came from a background where I grew up with hunting and weapons. I mean, I'd already killed several deer, and it's not like I came from a pacifist background. And so uh, it was kind of a journey for me. By the time I was subject to the draft, I had become thoroughly opposed to the war. I thought that what we were doing over there was just absolutely reprehensible, and I just wasn't going to participate in it. Jim's parents did not share his reservations. He kept trying to explain to them his opposition to the war without success. I mean, um, whenever I tried, I was very frustrated, I'll put it that way, and uh, I'd become quite alienated from my parents at that time. You know, I don't uh, really, I'm not uh, self-righteous about that. As I look back on it, I know it was very difficult for them. It was this generational thing. I mean, my father and mother were shaped by the Great Depression and World War II, and they just simply couldn't comprehend what was going on. College undergraduates were allowed to defer their military service if they were drafted. Jim was a good student, and he was accepted into a number of graduate programs. Masters and doctoral students, however, did not qualify for deferment if drafted. This gave particular weight to an offer made to Jim by the University of British Columbia in Canada. They had accepted me into their graduate program there and, and offered me a TA ship. So I had a place waiting for me and a means to support myself. It was tempting. Yet Jim also had a strong sense of loyalty and duty and a deep connection to the land where he had grown up. I grew up with a real sense of place. Growing up on this ranch that had been in the family and all those experiences, I mean, that would have been tough to have said goodbye to that, not to mention my inheritance. But I'm sure I would have been disinherited, but, uh, you know, I was willing to do it. But yet, at the same time, I guess, I was willing to make compromises. The people that were really true to their beliefs, they wouldn't even go into the military. They would have nothing to do with it. But I said, well, I'm not going to be that radical, but if they won't make me carry a weapon and use it, I'll, I'll go in, I'll, I'll serve, and nobody can say I was a coward. Jim turned down the offer from the Canadian University. Instead, he enrolled for graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. One day in March of 1969, during his first semester, Jim went to check his mail. He'd received an official envelope. Inside was a notice that James C. Kearney had been reclassified and was ordered to report to the Army induction station. He'd been drafted. In our next episode of Vietnam on Tape, we'll hear what happened after Jim applied for conscientious objector status. I felt I had made a bargain with the Army. Mm -hmm. And if they lived up to their side of the deal, I would live up to mine. This Texas Story podcast is produced by the Bullock Museum in downtown Austin. We tell stories through people, places, and original artifacts. So everything we do is because of people like you who keep Texas history and culture alive. This podcast is no exception, and we'd like to thank Jim Kearney and Gene Mansavage for being a part of it. This episode was edited and mixed by David Shulman. Visit the Bullock Museum online at thestoryoftexas.com, where you can also share your Texas story in the Texas Story Project. 
It might even find its way into the next season of our podcast. And if you're ever in Austin, be sure to stop by and visit the Bullock Museum. For Vietnam on Tape, I'm Evan Windham.